before we look at John uh, 12 this morning together, let me just mention uh, very quickly, uh, November 17th and 18th is approaching uh, um, before we know it. It'll be here, uh, men's conference that weekend. Uh, and men, let me just say, if you have not signed up, uh, you should do it this week. Uh, you could do it today. You could sign up. There's a form on the entrance table, or you can do that online. Go ahead and get that taken care of, and I won't have to tell you to sign up. Uh, and if you can't sign up, I, I will accept your doctor's excuse or whatever excuse you're going to have for not coming, but you should, uh, if you're going to be in town, I know some of you will be um, long gone by then, uh, but uh, I, I highly encourage you, greatly encourage you to make that a part of, uh, part of November in preparation for Thanksgiving. With that, let me just uh, say a word to, uh, to the church here um, and, and enlist you into uh, to praying for this event every year, um, not only for our own churchmen, but for the different uh, churches represented. We are we host it. Uh, Ryan does all the behind-the-scenes organizi- organ- organizing, whatever that word is. Uh, so we host it. So let's, let's, as we're doing that as a church, putting it on, uh, let's make sure we're prayerfully uh, seeking the Lord to bless uh, the word and as it goes forth. So let me challenge you. Uh, to make that part of your prayer schedule at least once a week. Can we do that? Is once a week too much to ask? So I should have I aimed higher, uh, but I'm going to just start with once a week for now. Make that a part of your weekly prayer schedule to be praying for the men's conference. General Lauren Reno, he'll be our speaker this year. Pray for him as he makes preparation for that. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to John chapter 12. John 12. And um, we'll be looking at verse 20. Through 26 this morning, John 12, 20 through 26. And I'm going to read it and you can follow along with me as I read the text and, and then we'll look at it together. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, as we come to the Gospel of John, I've been studying that as a church over the past year. There's been a reoccurring theme that stands out in my mind and and really is the pinnacle of this paragraph that we're going to consider this morning that you find in verse 23, that statement, the hour and the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, The reoccurring theme of the Gospel and really what God has been trying to teach us and show us 
as you look through the gospel of John is, is the glory, really the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants us to understand not only the glory of John, but I would say the, the pinnacle of the word of God itself revolves around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now turn with me back in John chapter number one as I, I try to explain what I mean by that. And, and then I want to look at some implications from that statement of the glory of Christ being shown. John begins his gospel, the very introduction of this, of trying to convey for us something of the nature of, of Jesus, something beyond what we can comprehend and understand. He begins not with Mary or Joseph, as you know, in First John, he begins with the eternal word. The verse three verses, uh, trying to understand who this Messiah figure was, this king of kings. He says in verse number one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So from the very get-go, he reminds us that this this word, this divine word was in the very presence of the Father of the same essence but distinct in persons. So you have the Father and you have the divine word and this divine word is attributed with being the author of life, the very creator of all things. In fact, John, just to make his point clear, says nothing was made that was not made through the word, through this, this divine son of God that we come to understand who he is. And so there is something about the nature of Jesus, something about his is before he came and manifested uh, in the flesh, took on flesh, there's something marvelous to consider when we come to think about this Jesus of Nazareth. But then he goes on in verse number 14, declaring uh, through a biographical account of his own experience, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so what does he say? He says, we have seen his glory. We beheld his glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is saying, culminating the life of Jesus in his ministry, ministering along with Jesus, what he is trying to tell us, what he will tell us in the next uh, several chapters is something of the glory which he himself saw as he ministered with him, the glory of the only begotten Son from the Father. In fact, we, he keeps on in chapter number one. If you turn over, John the Baptist is, is brought in, given a witness to this very thing about this glory which Jesus has. Verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, how would you like that? John just preaching, uh, repentance, uh, make the make this path straight. The king is coming. He's preaching. Then all of a sudden, he just stops his sermon. Wouldn't you like to do that? Just right in the middle of the sermon, Jesus come. That would be pretty cool. And so he looks and says, "Behold, the Lamb of God." Everyone's coming to see John, and John just cast all the attention on this Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, verse thirty-four, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Over and over through the miraculous events that Jesus performed, all the uh, the teaching that he had 
had taught up to chapter number 12 has been a declaration, has been a witness of the uniqueness and, and the, the majesty of this Jesus, this Messiah. In fact, the very first miracle is explained to us as a sign, and that sign is the manifest the manifestation of his glory to his disciples as he turned water to wine in John chapter number 2, verse number 11. In fact, most scholars look at the Gospel of John under two sections. One, the, the first, 1 through 12, as a, a book of the signs of Jesus, and the second as, as a book of the glory of Jesus. So the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching here is, is something of the glory or glory which he, is, he has, but also the glory, the glory which he is about to receive. Did you notice in verse number 23, he says, Jesus answered him, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, he is glory. The Father has testified to the glory of that, and so much so uh, that he tells his enemies, believe me for the very works that I do. They testify that God has sent me. And yet he says there is something greater there's something more to be seen, and that is this hour, this glory, which he is about to enter into. And that is to tell us that the high point, the pinnacle of the word of God and the ministry of Jesus Christ isn't just the opening of the blind eyes. It isn't just the lame man who was there at the pool near Bethsaida that he made walk and told him to pick up his bed and go home. It isn't the demon possessed that he, he healed from that possession All of those are magnificent. They're manifestations of the kingdom of God coming, invading the kingdom of darkness. But the greatest manifestation of the glory of the Son of God is the gospel itself. It is this death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, which highlights all that we see in the word of God. Everything flows into it and flows from it. It is this hour which Jesus is talking about, which means more than just 60 minutes. He's saying that, that all that he has come to do is highlighted in this, this one concentrated point. It's all for this one, one singular purpose to die and right, be raised from the dead and be exalted again, restored to the glory beside the Father, John chapter number 17. You see it in this agricultural term, don't you, when he speaks about this. When he speaks about this hour that the Son of Man be glorified, verse number 24, he gives us something of an illustration. And by the way, we'll spend all eternity rejoicing and reveling in the gospel. In the climax of what some people say, Revelation 5, we we sung about it a little bit, uh, of the inauguration of Jesus, if you want to say that or however you want to interpret that passage. What What do you see as we introduce to this Son of God? You see him not only as a lion, but as a lamb who had the markings of being slain, but risen again. And church, I'm just trying to tell you, we'll spend eternity praising God for his gospel work. We will continually give him glory for this hour, which he is about to embark on in the gospel of John. Notice he says in verse number 24, giving us this agricultural term, the illustration, truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. I just want to point out two things to notice out of this before we look at implications of this passage. The first is that Jesus is speaking in terms of necessity. Uh, Jesus, uh, he is saying that in order for the seed to be productive, in order for it to, to do anything beyond being a seed, it must die. It must fall to the earth and it must die if it's going to do anything at all. And we are reminded that the kingdom of God is built upon this self-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the gospel or the hope of salvation, forgiveness, all that we have promised to us in the word of God is built upon this one moment, this hour, which Jesus is about to embark on, that is dying and being raised from the dead. It reminds us that this great atoning work of Jesus is not a side doctrine, but the foundation of all Christian hope and all Christian truth, what he has come to do. And you and I find our security in that reality. The fact that we are not, we are, we are not told that righteousness is given to us because we're good people, and we may be good people as far as the world's concerned. But it also the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no formula of penance or, or systematic religious duty that you may embark on, no amount of money, check, you can write, or deed that you can accomplish that can undo that reality, that can garner or give forgiveness before God. In fact, God had given Israel a whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. You can read it in the book of Leviticus. And it's all about the animals that they're going to sacrifice, how they're to sacrifice it, all the meticulous details. And then we get to the book of Hebrews and we're reminded that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And so if a system which God had give, uh, given to Israel was not sufficient enough to garner forgiveness of sin and to make one just or justified, then something else must take place. No other man-made system, no other man-made creation, no other religious affiliation can give us what the death of Christ gives us. Now, Christ did not have to die in, for his own sin, or for his own sake. But without the death of Christ, without the shedding of his blood, there would be no hope for humanity. You see, it was necessary in the sense that we, we were not only estranged, alienated at enmity with God, we were unable to save ourselves, and so we needed a sacrifice. In this sense, Christ's death was necessary. But it was also potent powerful notice again the illustration truly truly i say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit I just remind you this morning that christ's death was not an accident it was not just because the people didn't like him now the people didn't like him they did reject him they did crucify him peter his first sermon makes that point very clear but he also makes the point that it was according to the predetermined plan of the Father. 
Because the death of Christ was not just the consequences of jealous leaders. It was for the very purpose to bring about fruit out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. That the death of one man, this one man, remarkable, spectacular, no one like him man, at his death and resurrection, we would have life. Our forgiveness, our our standing before God, our hope, and all of that is provided for us and to us through this great glory of Christ in his death and resurrection. It was potent. Just to think about the 2,000 years, not not including the Old Testament saints, the last 2,000 years, the millions, a, a, a multitude beyond number that have been redeemed, been made alive through this one death of Jesus Christ. You can give your life for a good cause. And some people might remember it and may put a plaque on a wall. You can, you can do a lot of things, but nothing, nothing has been so potent and powerful as this work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. And that through his death, and that's a gospel message, isn't it? The glory of Christ through his death, many are made alive. He's given us life. Well, well there's a great more things we could say about that but that is the pivotal point of this paragraph if your bible is in paragraph forms verse 12 or verse 20 through 26 that that's the kind of high peak point that's everything flowing into it and flowing from that that is the gospel is is at the center of it not only of the paragraph but of the book itself and and really of the bible and of human history jesus christ taking or god the son taking on flesh and dying and bearing much fruit. Well, flowing from that, if I could give you just a few things that may be helpful. As I was thinking this past month, I've been thinking about our study in the Gospel of John, and I'm thinking about our church, and I'm just trying to put together what our ambition ought to be as a, as a church with all the stuff that we do. There's a lot of teaching going on. There's a lot of classes and a lot of study, and we come week after week to worship and, and all the missionaries we support. And I think, what, what, with the reality of the gospel and the glory of Christ seen in the gospel, what ought to be our ambition? What is our greatest need as a congregation or as a people in general? Then I ask myself, like you probably ask yourself, can they both be the same thing? Wouldn't that be easy and nice? You just get the same answer. So you don't have to have pages and pages and pages of answers. And I think you see that in the text. And I want to share with you three words. uh, Three words that may help us navigate through this in my thinking and hopefully challenge you in your thinking this morning. uh, As a church, an ambition as a church, but also as a person, as a Christian, or just as a human being. Our greatest need and our greatest calling, and the first of which is to see. We see it wrapped up in the beginning of this in verse number 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I love that phrase. And oftentimes, as I think about preparing on Sunday morning, I, that phrase comes to mind more than not. 
and almost as if you coming here this morning that this phrase ought to be, I'm going to say ought to be, almost this is on your lips. You're coming not to see me and go on or do some crazy thing, but you're coming because your greatest need is to see Christ. Our greatest need in humanity is, is not to see bells and whistles, but to see Christ himself. We wish to see Jesus. Now, just for the context of this, these Greeks were, were, were demonstrating the, the broadness of the fruitfulness of Christ's death. Uh, you, you remember he spent most of his ministry in the Gospel of John in Galilee and, uh, and in Jerusalem. And, and so he was in those areas, one or the other, Samaria, a little time in Samaria. And, and then that's most of his ministry. But what would take place when Jesus would, would be exalted? He would send his disciples out to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles would come in as a flood to believe in Christ and to be born again. And you see the first fruits of that. You see the signs of that coming along the way as as we see leaves changing, we're like, uh, it's snowing, it's going to snow, right? So that's kind of what you see going on in the text. They come to Philip. Uh, some suggest maybe Philip knew them, maybe not. And nevertheless, they come to him and they ask him this great question, we wish to see Jesus. Why is that our greatest need? Why is our greatest need to see this glorious Christ? Well, I'd say Romans 1 tells us we've been born with a distorted view of God. It says we... We, though we knew the truth about God, humanity, we suppressed it. We, we pushed it down. So instead of worshiping God, the creator who made the heavens and the earth and created mankind in his own image, we have distorted the reality of God and we began worship the creature instead of the creator. We, we make up our own stuff. We color outside the lines, whatever you want to call it. We, we have a distorted understanding of God and we're born that way. In fact, I think Calvin is right, speaking of uh, probably older people, but he says our heart is a perpetual factory of idols. just keeps pumping them out. And the reason we need to see Christ is because we have a distorted view of God. But not only because we have a distorted view of God, our sin itself, our, our sin being sinful, all of us sinning against God, pulls us into the shadows, into the darkness rather than into the light. Isn't that the condemnation that coming, light is coming to the world, but men love darkness rather than light? Why do they love darkness? Because of sin. At enmity with God and sinning against God and our conscience bearing against us, condemning us by natural, uh, natural response to that is to pull back from God in a dreadful fear. So you have a distorted view of God and then you have this kind of uh, dread of God because of our sinful condition and thirdly, because we are without hope. As was mentioned this morning, even in our opening up, that being without Christ is being without hope because we are walking in darkness. And because of all of that, the answer, the, the, the remedy we need is to see Jesus. The Bible says Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And that light is to illuminate for us the reality of who God is. To, to, to change or, or, or correct or, or fix that distorted view of God. To proclaim to us what you've been worshiping, what you've been chasing, what you've been bowing down before of is a false God and is a, a, a worthless 
image. This is not who God is. So in Christ, that image is restored. We're confronted with the reality of God, but not only the reality of God and who He is, we're also confronted with the mercy of God. So that while we are standing before God at Mount Sinai in fear and dread, it is standing at Mount Calvary, we are, we are brought in to see mercy and grace and love. And where our natural response will be to run from God at Calvary, we have that, that chance, that opportunity to run towards God. And where do we get that? We get that in, in the proclamation, in the glory of Christ. It is in the seeing the glory of Christ that the light is turned on and hope is ours. In fact, we not only need that, just in simplicity, in, in our simple salvation, deliverance. And if you're estranged from God this morning, you don't know him, you're not walking in fellowship with him, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's what he came to declare God and his goodness and that opportunity of forgiveness and acceptance in him. What do you need? You need, you need Christ. You need a vision. You need to see him high and lifted up, not for his own sin or his own guilt, but for yours. And that through that being high and lifted up, you might find hope and courage and forgiveness and belonging. But beloved, let me just mention, because sometimes I think we, we, we get that when we get in to the church. Well, that's the continual need for you this morning. It doesn't matter if you've been saved 50 years. In fact, what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians is we are being transformed by the very thing. We, we are changed into the likeness of the very thing that we behold, the very thing that we love. If you love your sin, then your character and your conduct and your actions will display that kind of character, whatever sin you want to pick. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, for us Christians, for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, you cannot grow apart from beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. I'll read it for you. We all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. What is he saying to them? Is saying to us that your sanctification the, the, the working out is, is taking place as you come to behold him, as you come to see him in all of his majesty. Now, by see him, I don't mean have a dream or see him in a tortilla or read that in a book somewhere. I don't mean a shadowy vision as you're walking down the road. I'm not talking about that at all. What I'm saying is when your mind, through the, through the mind, when you come through hearing the word, comprehend who he is and what he's done for you. That's what I mean by seeing the glory of God. I mean to comprehend his greatness, his majesty, the beauty uh, and magnitude of who he is, his kingly office, his uh, priestly work, his glorious return. I mean comprehending, seeing and hearing and, and knowing him through faith. That's my desire week after week, that we come with that on our lips. Oh, that I would see Jesus. Uh, is that your prayer as you whisper before you open your Bibles to do your devotional reading? Lord, help me see you today. 
on your commute to church as you are, you're, you're getting right with the Lord before you get here. Or maybe when you get in the parking lot because of the drive. Whatever it is, is that your desire? Is that your petition? I think that ought to be the, the aim of all of our ministries. All of our teaching is to, 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 to emphasize, to, to work and, and strive in a manner that we might show him, that we might see him. But not only is that our greatest need to see Jesus, let me mention secondly, to follow Jesus. Just by way of helpful, it might help you or not, I was listening to a sermon by a gentleman who was a very, uh, very, uh, he really grabbed your attention, you know what I'm saying. That, anyway, and a very uh, good speaker and and charismatic and, you know, had some charisma about him and he was preaching on John 15. I was very uh, discouraged. I get that way. It was, it was a long time ago, but anyway, very discouraging. He preached a whole message on stuff I should be doing. And I thought to myself, nowhere in this whole passage of John 15, where he is the true vine and we are the branches, did he show me or us Christ. All I'm trying to say is uh, that that is our greatest need is to see Jesus. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. It doesn't matter what vocation you're in. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're, you're in Christ or outside of Christ. The greatest need is still the same. It does matter in the long run, but the greatest need is still the same. That, 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 that vision to see Jesus, a desire to see Jesus. But seeing Jesus is a call to action as well, isn't it? So we come here and we hear a sermon, good, bad, the ugly, whatever you want to call it. You come here, you hear all this stuff about Jesus, what he's done for us, and then you're just going about your way. Is, is that how the, the whole church thing works? Uh, and the encounter, when you look at the word of God and you read it in your devotional time, is that how it works? You just read it and you're just kind of going about your way. And, and is it not all calling us, prompting us, commanding us, inviting us to action? In fact, what you see here and what we've heard just in Luke's account, the, the stakes are high and the cost is high, but it is a, a call to follow him. Notice here in, at the end of this, so you had some Greeks, they wanted to see Jesus, the greatest need. Notice verse number 25, after this pinnacle, the high point here, we come off the other side of the mountain and he extends to us an invitation. Now, there's some invitations that Jesus gives that's really nice, like... To the weary and worn out. How many of you have been there? You can raise your hand for that, right? That's no shame in that. Weary and worn out. Come find rest. That's what we want. Weary and worn out. I want to rest. Jesus says, I got it. Come. We like that. And yet to a multitude, in Luke's account, we read this morning, to a multitude, he says, by the way, if you come, there is rest. But you better count the cost. There's a cost to it. It doesn't lower the bar here either. And in a gospel where the emphasis is on believe, believe, see him for what he's done and believe. That's, that's a whole purpose of the gospel. The Bible is given to us to, to see him, see God and the triune God and seeing him believe. And that believing is fleshed out by following which is really a step further than just acknowledging the truth about something, isn't it? It's true. 
but I'll be like that old gospel song, I shall not be, I shall not be moved. And yet Jesus says, if you, if you see me for who I am, call this to follow. In fact, that's displayed for us in the disciples, isn't it? Seeing him at the very beginning of the gospel narratives of, of his preaching and that miraculous catch of fish and, and seeing that. And he tells them at the end of that, when they get back to shore, he says, leave it all and come and follow me. And what does he do? What do the guys do? They follow him. Notice verse number 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Are you following Jesus this morning? Are you moving with him? Are you, is your life marked by being a disciple, being a follower? Now notice the statement here. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Isn't that a tragedy? Whoever loves his life, and and what Jesus is saying is, there's a way that you can love your life There's a way that we love our lives that you commit the greatest act of hatred and harm and evil to your life. Think about that. Those who love their lives will lose it. Now that losing it is being separated from God, facing the condemnation, the consequences of our sin. That's what he's saying. We we bring around the greatest harm through loving our lives. The very thing that we want to do is promote ourselves and, and, and care for ourselves and because we love ourselves. And he said, at the end, you don't realize that you've created the greatest act of hate towards yourself by loving yourself. You know, idolatry in all of its forms and all of its fashion is really just a, another projection of self. It is a manifestation of ourselves. And as long as we're pursuing our own passion, our own wisdom, our own agenda, our own praise, our own comfort, our own vices, we will continually remain unmoved at the invitation of Christ when he says, come and follow me. We will not count the cost. The idea of picking up a cross and dying to self will be unthinkable, won't it? And Jesus says, as long as you remain with you at the center of your world, doing what you want to do, you will, in the end, lose your life. You know, another place he tells us, what, what, what would it do if you gained the whole world and lost your soul? Can you imagine gaining the whole world? It's like a Nebuchadnezzar kind of thing, isn't it? My glorious kingdom. And in a moment, he's eating grass like an animal. And so it is with anyone who trusts in his own strength and power and might. And see, God is calling us and seeing Jesus for who he is to follow him. That's the call there. And he goes on and says, not only you have that, those who love their life will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Isn't that weird? Hate your life in this world? What, in the, what are you talking about? I'm glad you asked. Well, if you think following Jesus is the easy road, the most comfortable thing, 
and in line with all of your passions and desires and ambitions, then you're wrong. In fact, what happens in coming to Christ is all of those things change. Some of them quickly and some of them over a process of time. Uh, and here he's saying, if you hate your life in this world, and don't you think if Jesus is going to suffer and you're going to come to him and follow him and be his disciple, that there's not a measure of suffering and shame you're going to have to bear? Now, you won't do what he did. No one can do what Jesus did. But Paul reminds us that knowing Christ, coming and and truly seeing him for who he is and knowing him, there is a measure of fellowship in his suffering, Philippians chapter number three, right? That's the very thing he's telling these people here who's uh, listening to him in a culture that has already turned against him and a a nation which has virtually rejected him. He'll condemn them for that in the next few set of verses. He says, if you love your life in this world, if if this is yours and, and all you're striving for, then you will lose it in the end. But if you despise that sort of thing in this world, then you will save your life. You will have eternal life. He could be talking about what he speaks of in 1 John as he speaks about the affections of this world and its sinful expressions in the love, lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He reminds us this is not from the Father. It is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. That seems kind of a hard invitation, doesn't it? And all that I'm saying is that in seeing Christ is not meant to leave us unmoved or unchanged. You get that? We, our greatest need is to see him. And in seeing him, the call is to follow him. And he doesn't just say to follow him. It's hard. It's difficult. And you might ask, why would you ever do that? Well, one, I say it takes a miracle. The work of the spirit of God in us to to make that transition, but for two, he gives us a motivation here, doesn't he? There's a loss of life, and then there's the gain of life. But he also gives us two more things, doesn't he, in verse number 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And saying, you hate your life in this world, this short world, you're despising the sinful uh, ambitions of the world and sinful passions of the world and and, and your gift is eternal life. And he says, you know what the reward is? Well, it's eternal life. It's to be with me in heaven. To be with me in in glory. Verse number 26. And then he says there's another motivation. Not only will you be with me, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We honor people, give honor to whom honor is due. We do that in this side of glory. It's a terrible thing if that's what we live for, for people to honor us, isn't it? It's a terrible slave master trying to make impress people. But he says, those who follow me, my father will honor. My father will glorify. My father will, will give a share of my inheritance and my glory Uh, it's an amazing thought. And all that simply says is we're moving towards Christ. In seeing him, we move towards him, following him, growing both in knowledge and likeness. 
And if you say you've put your faith and trust in Christ and, and you've, you've come and you've prayed and you did those things, but your life has never bore the mark of being a true disciple, I would just plead with you this morning, are you, do you truly know him? Have you truly seen him for who he is? Have you seen him in all of his glory and majesty and worthiness? Have you seen him in all of his promises and blessings and gifts that he gives to those who come to him? Or are you still in, in, engrossed with the trinkets and the silliness and the false hopes that this world has to offer? Do you know him? Are you following him? The last uh, of the three words I would give to you this morning, not only are we to see Jesus, we're to follow him. The last is we are to show him. Notice again at the first of this. So some among who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we will wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, there's many words I could use uh, in this movement of grace in our life this morning, one could be we should preach Jesus. That's a good word, but some of you would be like, well, I'm not a preacher. And uh, I don't, I'm not, in, you know, not that. So that opts me out, so you have to back off. Well, maybe that's too strong of a word. So maybe we should just say um, we should proclaim Jesus. But there's about 10 introverted people in this room who be like, I don't like really proclaiming anything. Can we have something a little more passive and a little, a little easier, a softer approach to this? So I could say, okay, we to see Jesus, we're to follow Jesus, and we're to tell of Jesus, right? Tell others. Well, it's kind of nice, but it sort of relegates our witness to only one part of our life, and that is our voice, our speaking. And if our greatest need is to see Jesus, all of us, I picked the word show. If you don't like it, put whatever you want to in there, okay? We want to show Jesus. How did these Greeks come to this place? Now, when I ask the question, I, I suppose, and, and I think you would give me the, the uh, sort of um, the benefit of the doubt that it was the grace of God working in their life. The Holy Spirit is the, who opens our eyes to the reality of Jesus, Okay? So we're all on the same page. You can nod and help me out with here and make sure you're following me. It's almost over. See, I woke up, three of you. So, um, so the Holy Spirit is the one who works in our heart and life to open our eyes to the beauty, the majesty, the forgiveness, the goodness, the kindness, the, the mercy of Christ, okay? But how does he do that? To someone telling them, Someone telling us about the goodness, the mercy, majesty, and the grace of Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to say is that people move towards faith in Jesus supernaturally and also through the means by which God has ordained. These men, no doubt, have heard about Jesus and the miracles, may have heard about Lazarus coming uh, being raised from the dead, they may have actually been in the temple when Jesus went and cleansed the temple. When he went in on, rode in on Palm Sunday, he goes straight to the temple, he cleaned house, he left. He, they may have been in the court of Gentiles when this taken place. Whatever it was, they heard of the, 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 the miracles and the glory of this Jesus of Christ, and so they're like, let's go see him. 
And they also come to someone who has, has known him, who's walked with him, and who has seen him themselves, Philip and Andrew. And what I'm trying to say is we, we if, we're, if we think about it this way, we have had a thousand different voices. That may be hyperbole, but we've had, okay, let's go a hundred. We've had a hundred different voices telling us the same message if you've been raised up in church. Some of you haven't had that privilege. It hasn't been your background, but many of you have had Sunday school teachers, your mom and dad, your uh, friends, loved ones, aunts, uncles, pastors, preachers, VBS, close friend, whatever it is, people in your life that has been telling you the same thing, been doing the same thing over and over, and that is in some way showing you the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. The gospel, his glory. And that's what we ought to be doing as a church. What we ought to do with our children as we try to raise our children in the faith. Some of you may not have had that much investment, but at this point in your life, you're here on a Sunday morning, and and you could say that you've had many people coming and telling you about Jesus, showing Jesus to you. In fact, Paul likens it like this, some planted and some watered. We we realize that we have joined together in the same work, and that is to show Jesus, to declare him, preach him, tell of him, to proclaim him to the multitudes around us. Some planted, some watered, but God gave the increase. If the world is ever going to see Jesus, and it's going to be from those who have seen him, and who have followed him to proclaim him, to share him, you see that? They come to Philip. And Philip, with that desire, brings them along and leads them to Jesus. That's what your people need. That's what the people in our family need. They need someone they can go to. Can they go to you if they had questions about who Jesus is, what the gospel is? You say, well, I don't know all the details and all the verse, scripture, references, and all that. Well, we'll, we'll learn it. Pray for them. Lead them along as much as you can to show who Jesus is. That's how it works. That's how it's going to work in our society. That's how it's going to work in our town. It's going to take people who know Jesus, who have seen him, who are following him, to share him. And the reason I chose share is because there's two aspects to that kind of work in our life. There's showing him by speaking, and you have to. But there's also showing him by doing. Can they see Jesus in your life? I may have shared the illustration once at a lunch with someone. We were talking to another person who clearly had never heard the gospel and he was not familiar with Bible or Jesus or any of those things. And the guy I was sitting at the table with, he said, well, don't, well, listen to him. What he's saying is true. And pretty much that old adage, don't do as I do, but do as I say sort of thing with his whole life. And I thought to myself at that moment, is it worth giving to this guy who's never heard the gospel what the true gospel is when you yourself won't live it? When you yourself don't embody it and you don't believe it enough to live for him, enough to follow him. What I'm trying to say is we short circuit the message of the cross oftentimes by our conduct, our life. Can people see Jesus in your life? Can they hear it from your lips? 
and shouldn't our lips, if our mind is, is continually being renewed by the power of God and the Holy Spirit in us and renewed by the gospel truths, we're continually being confronted with the reality of Christ, shouldn't his glory and his goodness and his, his kindliness and his, and his second coming, all of that be on our lips continually? It ought to, oughtn't it? Well, that, that's the funny thing about that word, ought to. That mean it always is. And what is the answer? We have to go back to square one. We need to see him, don't we? And follow him and share him. But church, there's many things we give ourselves to, many things that we can do, but those three, I think, sum up the whole life of our ministry here that we should be about. Seeing him, believing and following him, and sharing him. Whether it's here at Charlie John's, Mountain Market, or whether it's hungry, Egypt or wherever we go. Let us share him. He's worthy. Father, we thank you for this morning. We can gather together today. We thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the gift of your son. The glory which uh, even now we stand amazed that he would die on a cross for our sins. Raise again so that we might have newness of life. And, And your enemies become friends and sons. And the Hebrew writer reminds us that he calls us brother. What a beautiful truth that is. Help us today. I pray for those here uh, that may not know you, may be walking wayward. Father, would you take something that's said and work in their heart and life and uh, lead them to Christ, lead them to salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.